Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. You can find this on page 900 in the Bibles under your chair. John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Mike. Happy to be with you here this morning. First off, before I get started, I just want to say thank you to Aaron Pendergrass for preaching last week on the way that the gospel shapes friendship. I took a lot from the the sermon in particular. I was struck by just this whole idea of Jesus disclosing himself to us as a friend as he reveals the the mysteries of of the Father. That's been very meaningful, meaningful for me this past week. So Aaron is a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and we're, we're grateful for his preaching talents as well. We, we want to be a church that pours into him. We believe that one of the roles of the local church is to train up pastors and leaders for, uh, for being sent out into the world. And so I just encourage you to, if, if, whatever, however the, the Lord worked in you through the sermon, I, I encourage you to share that with Aaron. Um, that, that kind of encouragement is, is deeply valuable to a preacher. So today we continue in our series called Gospel in Life, and today we're talking about the topic of, of service, so how the gospel shapes service. And today's going to be a little bit different than, than what we usually do. We typically sort of have a sermon directly into communion, into some final songs, but instead I'm going to preach a, a little bit of an abbreviated sermon. So rather than preaching for 40 minutes, it's going to be about 30. And then afterward, we're going to have our, our two deacons of care come up, and they're each going to share testimonies around the, the topic of service. So first will be Donna Stevenson, and after that, Liz Woody and, and her husband Steve will, will come up and they'll share about um, the way that they served a, a member of this, this community as she was nearing uh, the end of her life. So here's how I want to start this morning. I want to start with a question. The question is, what do you think of when you think of Greatness. What do you think of when you think of greatness? So for many of us, what's going to populate into our minds is going to be maybe like an incredible sports team, like maybe a baseball team winning the series, particularly a team in like 2005. That's probably going to be what what comes to mind. The White Sox won in 2005. I'm like, me and Michael Uet are like the two White Sox fans here and my dad. Oh, there we go. That's awesome. Oh, wow. This is, this is revelatory for me. Awesome. <laughs> so, all right. So there's some similar Sox fans. That's great. Um, so maybe you think of that. Maybe you think of something more regal or, or, or stately, like a king or a queen or a, a president. That's sort of what, what comes to your mind when you think of greatness. You know, it's, it, oftentimes it's somebody with sort of like a lot of responsibility, a lot of power. Lots of different things might come to mind. Now, what's impressive about 
all these sorts of people, I, it's, I don't think it's just their talent or their responsibility or their power, right? I don't think it's, it's any of those things by themselves. I think oftentimes the reason why we really see someone as great is because they've, along with this responsibility and power or whatever, came incredible sacrifice. Incredible sacrifice came with, with all these things. And so in order to be a great athlete, you have to pour yourself out. In order to really lead a country well, you have to pour yourself out. It's, but it's not just sacrifice for its own sake. It's sacrifice for the sake of something greater than yourself, right? All these people that we look up to as really great people, they're sacrificing, but it's not just sacrificing so that they can, like, move themselves forward on the social ladder or something like that. It's sacrificing for something greater than themselves. And just to illustrate this through a negative example, just imagine how we would feel if, like, there's a post-game interview with some football star or whatever, and the interviewer just, like, asks, so what led you to, to want to play football? And he's like, you know, I don't know. I just, it seemed like a way for me to use my borderline intolerable, flagrant egotism to my own advantage. It seemed like a way for me to make money, and a lot of it, but in like a relatively short amount of time. And, uh, and also, you know, it just seemed like it would be a way for people to praise me, but without me having to work on my character. Like, if somebody said that, like, if that was the answer to the question, what led you to football, we would just be disgusted. Like, it would just be, it, it wouldn't matter how great a player they, they were. We would just think, my goodness, that's nauseating. This person is terrible. Click. No longer supporting them. Whatever they answer, like, they become smaller in our eyes if, if they answered that way. They wouldn't be great to us anymore. Because they, we'd realize that all this was really just for themselves. It wasn't for anything greater. Than themselves. They have an inflated ego. It's bigger than it ought to be. Now, when someone's truly great, how, how do they answer, right? So what led you to play football? The love of the game. What led you to run for office? The love of country. These folks do what they do out of a kind of service to something greater than themselves. And that doesn't mean that they don't get anything from the glory, Right? So I'm not talking about some sort of altruistic thing where there's no self-interest involved. There is self-interest involved, but it's self-interest that realizes there is something more important than me. There's something greater than me. And so it's self-interested in the sense that it's like, hey, for my own good, I want to participate in something bigger than Mike. Right? Because Mike is not that substantial. So it's self-interest, but self-interest that recognizes there's something more important than ourselves. We aren't the thing worthy of being served. When we see these great people, the, the greatness that they have, it's a greatness that comes from serving something greater than themselves. And I think really deep down most of us recognize that there's that that's true greatness, and, and we find it deeply motivating and deeply beautiful and compelling. And I think the reason why is because we want to be caught up in a meaningful life. We want to have a meaningful life. We want to we have a deep sense that we're participating in something good. And most of us recognize that in order to have that kind of a meaningful life, we shouldn't get so caught up in how important we are. 
So regardless of how we actually live our lives, which is a totally different story, most of us at least recognize this on an intellectual level. To live a meaningful life means getting caught up in the greatness of something greater than ourselves. And it's really interesting if you think about it. It's like almost a paradox. Basically, on the one hand, we all feel like we're meant for greatness. Many of us have sort of like suppressed that as life has kind of beaten us down. But, but most of us come into the world with a sense that, that yeah, in some sense, I'm, I'm meant for greatness. But if we're discerning enough, we realize that the greatness we're meant for isn't our own. We all recognize we're meant for greatness, but the greatness we're meant for isn't our own. I think we recognize that if we've developed any kind of real spiritual insight. So I'm in JP's community group. If you don't know JP, he has just a remarkable talent for metaphor. And in group, we got the benefit of hearing that um, week after week. It's pretty awesome. So at one point, he was talking about service in, in group, and he brought up a children's book. It's called Fool Moon Rising. And the story talks about how, how there's this moon who's bright and, and beautiful, and he kind of gets high on himself, sort of obnoxious, just really, really full of himself about how awesome and great he is. But eventually, through some circumstances, the moon comes to realize that the only reason it's bright and beautiful is because it's relying on and reflecting the brightness and beauty of the sun. That the whole time, it's not really the moon's greatness, It's the sun's greatness, and the moon is relying on that and reflecting it. And so the story ends, it's a kid's book, so it's a very, very brief story, and it ends with the moon sort of finding satisfaction and having found true true greatness. That true greatness, the greatness that, that the moon is meant for, is not the greatness to be this like burning ball of gas in the middle of space. It's to be a darkened rock that becomes bright with the glory of the sun. That's the greatness that we're meant for. Humans are made for a derivative greatness. What I mean by that is that humans are not the source of our own greatness. We derive greatness from something greater than ourselves. So let's unpack that more, but let's, let's go to the Hebrew and Christian scriptures to, to see how that, how that gets developed. So in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a, a book called the book of Genesis, or in other words, the book of beginnings. And in it, there's a description of the purpose of human life. And there's two things that we see. Humans were made to rely on God, and humans were made to reflect God. To rely on God and to reflect God. Basically, God makes humanity in his own image, and humans have this vital relationship to God where they're relying on him as the source of their life and the source of, of like all, their, all their resources. They're relying on him for the source, as their source of meaning and purpose. But as they're relying on him, and as they share this like 100% dependent relationship, they're given this incredible mission to then go out into the world to reflect the nature of God through their work and their relationships and, and, and families and their play and their leisure. Everything becomes a reflection of the beauty of God. And they actually partner with God in, in, in developing the world. The greatness of being human was the greatness of serving the greatest thing. The Catholic journalist G.K. Chesterton once put it this way, we are tallest when we kneel. That's what it is to be human, to rely on and reflect God. Serving God. 
And serving God in the way that humanity was called to do, that's actually a really noble calling. And by doing it, humanity was meant to share in the, the glory of God, not to usurp it. We don't usurp the glory of God, but we share in it. In this mysterious way, we participate in what makes God great. Because it's from his greatness that we derive all our life, and it's his greatness that we were made to reflect into the world. So we share in the greatness of God. But humanity rejected that way of greatness. And we see this in our habits now, right? That we, we, we aren't that into this whole derivative greatness thing. We see it in how desperate we are to feel self-made. And what I mean by that, I think if we really sort of examine ourselves, we recognize that it's really important to us to have like a story for our lives where we sort of like beat the odds and we didn't rely on anybody and we made ourselves, right? It's really important for us to have sort of a, a story where we made it by our own grit and creativity and, and we often forget the ways that we had to rely on people or the way that we had to, to take a handout. That stuff is, is sort of shameful for us to mention. Why is it shameful for us to mention? What does that reveal about us? I think what it reveals to us is pride. We don't want to feel like any part of our greatness was derivative. We want to feel like it's original to us. And out of this impulse, humanity departs from God. We depart from our purpose. We look for ways to glory that don't involve loving the greatest thing. We stop serving God and serve self instead. And it's actually to our own destruction. Because it's, it's created a chasm between us and God. And also it's, it's created a chasm between us and the way of life we were meant for. And so as a result, we're becoming increasingly alienated from our meaning, increasingly alienated from each other because we just keep running against the grain of how the universe was actually made. We've been habituated to serve anything but the maker. We'll rather serve comfort, security, tribe, whatever. And so for us to be restored, our allegiance needs to be moved entirely back onto God. If we're still serving two masters, then we're still running against the grain of the world that God put in place. So full allegiance needs to be restored. We have to become the servants of God we are meant to be. Now, I don't know about you, but in my experience, I'm terrible at making that happen. Like, I have never been able to do that. There's always a remainder. There's always a remainder. And let's imagine just for a second that, like, we actually are able to just, on the flip of a dime, suddenly shift all our full service and allegiance back to God. What happens with the whole first part of our lives and all the destruction, largely unseen, that we're, that we're responsible for? We begin to realize that this thing isn't just about, like, us as individuals rediscovering our purpose. We're part of a whole network of, of people, a, a community that we have harmed. And so we begin to realize that this thing is also about justice. That justice has to be done. Not only do we need to be perfectly restored, we need to be forgiven. And that's what Jesus comes to do. If people cannot be perfect servants on their own work, 
What if God becomes a person and lives the life of perfect love and service we were made to live? What if God acted as our representative? And what if all the justice for our sin were poured out on him, on his body, so that he would absorb the cost instead of us? And that's essentially what you have in Christ. The news of what Jesus has done is what we as Christians call the gospel. The, the gospel news, or the good news. So here, here's the, the question for today's passage. How does it work? How does the gospel, this news of what Jesus has come to do, how does the gospel restore us to the greatness of serving God? So we're going to dive into today's passage and, and unpack this. We read the first part of the passage, and I'll be reading the, the rest of it as we go along, this, this whole account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And the first thing that we see, the first way that the gospel restores us to the greatness of serving God, it's, it's pretty counterintuitive. The gospel restores us as we rely on the service of Christ. The gospel restores us as we rely on the service of Christ. So you heard the opening of the passage. Just as a little bit of context, if you're not familiar with, with first century practices, basically in the first century, most people walked around in sandals, and the roads were, were really, really filthy with just like dust and dirt and even animal dung and stuff like that. And so as people would walk around in, in just bare sandals, if they came into the home of a host for, for dinner, either before or during the meal, there'd be a servant that would come out, and they would be tasked with, with washing everybody's feet. And it was pretty foul, as you can imagine. It was a task that was considered so, so lowly that only, only like the, the lowest caliber of servant would, would do it, right? It certainly wasn't something that any disciples would do. If you were a disciple of a rabbi, you already had moved up the social ladder a little bit, and so you, you were exempt from that work. It's not something you would do. So here's what you've got to imagine on the, the night that's being narrated here in, in the book of John. All across Jerusalem on this particular night, there's a bunch of other rabbis, uh, uh, word for teacher. There's a bunch of other rabbis, just like Jesus, sitting with their disciples, just like Jesus. And all across Jerusalem, before the Passover meal, a servant's going to come out and wash all their feet. And it's going to be disgusting. Except in the room where Jesus is. Instead, what we have in Jesus, he, he stands up, strips down as a servant would, puts a towel around his waist, and the master takes up the role of the servant. So the master takes up the role of somebody who is considered lower in society than even the disciples of the master. Like, it's a total reversal of all our expectations the one who is the greatest takes the posture of the least. And so Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And I'm not sure how, how I would have reacted. I mean, I'm sure some of the disciples would, would, would be confused. Maybe some of them are just like moved because they got it on some level. Some might be just offended, like truly offended by, by what they're seeing. So Jesus arrives at one of the disciples, and, and this is the, the disciple that sort of functioned as the leader of the group outside of Jesus. His name was Peter. And here's what happens when he gets up to Peter. So Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, 
you have no share with me. It's this fascinating little exchange. Again, if we were preaching through the book of John, the whole sermon would just be about the, the passage as a whole, and I'd get to go into all the details, but today's not that day, so I just want to point out a couple things about this little exchange. Eventually, in this whole passage, Jesus is going to tell the disciples that they need to imitate his service. Okay, so that moment is coming. But before it even gets there, before we ever get to this moment where Jesus tells the disciples to imitate his service, before he ever tells them to serve like him, he tells them they need to be served by him. Peter's very proud, so he's fine with the idea of service as long as he's the one doing it, right? So he's fine with the idea that he's going to have to get his hands dirty for Jesus' kingdom. He's kind of a go-getter. He's a little bit of a knucklehead. But in any case, it makes sense to him that he will have to do some work. And I wonder if it even maybe feeds his ego that he's going to have to do some work. Because if he's the one doing the serving— then he's the one people are relying on. As long as Peter is the one serving, then he can feel like he deserves his share. The glory is really his. But Jesus tells him that anyone who wants a share in the greatness of Christ must rely on the service of Christ. It's totally counterintuitive. And so suddenly it becomes really obvious that Jesus is talking about way more than just first century sanitation. Let's go back just briefly to the opening of the section, verses 1 through 4. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, it's talking about his death, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, talking about his death. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him to death, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. In other words, his death, his death, resurrection, and ascension, the ultimate work of Christ in the world. John doesn't want us just to read a passage about Jesus washing feet. He wants us to be thinking from the get-go in this chapter about the death of Christ. That the ultimate service of Christ, his ultimate act of self-giving love is when he pours himself out in death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. This passage is about the gospel. The cross of Christ is the moment when Jesus is killed to mend the relationship between us and our creator. He lays down his life for the sake of people who would never lay down their lives for God. And like, let's just take a second to think about that. I mean, the disciples in this passage, they're struggling to comprehend how a rabbi would wash his disciples' feet. They think that's a reversal. But what John wants us to see is that there's an even bigger reversal taking place. In the cross, we are seeing the one through whom all things were made pouring himself out for people who hate him. We see the reversal to end all reversals. God made low. The Christian message is this. Before we ever served God, He served us. 
Now, in the United States, we're pretty individualistic. We talked earlier about the desire to feel self-made. What that does sometimes, I think, is sometimes we feel sort of this shame at receiving help. We're very slow to ask for help. We're slow to communicate our needs. We live as though we're supposed to have it all together, and everything in our culture is telling us that we need to have it all together, right? I mean, it shows up in TV shows. It shows up like you, in order to, to feel at all satisfied with your life, you should be the most extraordinary person in the world, right? We're supposed to have it all together and suppress it whenever we feel like we don't. But more and more of us are, are entering into this psychological tension of hearing all of our culture's narrative while underneath it, we're just becoming more and more pressurized and more and more inwardly aware that we do not have it all together. We need. And if someone actually does step out of their way and serve us, we feel terrible afterward. Like we were burdened or like we, like we failed. Like we failed by, by accepting service. I'm supposed to serve, not be served, Right? But in the gospel, we're given this totally different posture. We're told that, no, 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 before you can serve, you must be served. That we need, we need to rely on God. And extrapolating from that, on each other. If we start to say that we don't need, we're liars. Can we throw the, uh, the picture up on the screen? So I don't know how well... You guys are going to be able to see this. Um, this is an Eastern Orthodox icon. To clarify, the, the leadership here at Trinity, we do not endorse uh, the theology of iconography. In other words, we don't believe that icons are a means of mediating the divine. But we still consider Eastern Orthodox believers our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And icons tend to be laden with an, an, an enormous amount of symbolism that we, we would agree with, Roman Catholics would agree with, just across all of Christian Orthodoxy all agree on. So I'd like to show you this icon. Also, it's just beautiful. Like, it's awesome. Um, So in this icon, this is an icon of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And the the way my eyes tend to read it, I I always find myself starting at Christ because he's sort of facing the opposite direction of everything else in in the image. So it starts with Jesus washing the feet of Peter. And then my eyes start to travel up the disciples. I love that Peter is scratching his head the, uh, the artist has Peter scratching his head. He's confused as to what's happening. So we have like Jesus, Peter, uh, and then we go, get up to these other disciples up here. And they're, they're sort of all facing each other. So I, I think we're meant to understand that they're talking. The one, you see the ones at the very, very top to the right. They're all facing each other. I think they're talking. So they're kind of like, what just happened? Like, these are all the guys that have already washed, had their feet washed, and they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. So they're all talking to each other. And then finally you get to this figure here who's wearing the red cloak. You guys see him? I know it's a small image. So he's clean-shaven, which usually in, in iconography means it's John because he was pretty young. So here's John, and look at his posture. Like, he, he almost looks, like, wistful to me, like, longing. He just looks like a man who is overcome, right? Where he's kind of leaning his head down on his knee and just contemplating. I I think the artist very intentionally wants us to travel up from Jesus through the confusion of Peter, through the deliberation of all these other disciples, and then get to this key moment with John. 
And then notice how you, you travel down, and it's a bunch of disciples taking off their sandals. I think the artist intentionally wants us to follow through this progression of seeing that, that we can really have problems with this whole idea of being served by Jesus. And we'll be confused like Peter. And maybe we'll like deliberate within ourselves about how we're still autonomous, even though I'm accepting help, and like I'm, how am I going to be okay with this, until finally we're given the posture of the disciple, which is somebody who is just awed by the grace of God. And when we arrive at that moment where we are just floored by God's love, then the next step is for us to take our sandals off and to identify with the rest of the disciples and be served by Jesus. That's the posture we should have. The first way that the gospel shapes us when it comes to service is this. It tells us that we must be served. We had to be served in the cross of Christ And it's not wrong to receive that. We were made to rely on God. The the gospel restores us to that. It doesn't diminish our humanity. It enlarges us. We were not meant to be autonomous. We were meant to be dependent. When we come to the cross, we watch Christ meet our deepest needs. And that's why we have permission to make our needs known to each other. Jesus didn't just reconcile us horizontally to God, but, or vertically to God, but horizontally to each other. He came to shape the way we, we relate to each other. And so if I know in my gut that I have need, deep spiritual need, that's going to shape the way that I interact with you guys, that I'm going to make it known when I'm suffering. And that's not a diminishment of our humanity. I think it, it enlarges us. So we share in the greatness of God by relying on the service of Christ. We have to be served. Secondly, we share in the greatness of God by reflecting the service of Christ. Here's what Jesus says. When Jesus had finished washing their feet and he put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet— you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I think we want to be, like we said at the beginning, we want to be people who participate in greatness. And what we're learning is that the, the true greatness humanity was meant for was, was, was service to God, right? I kind of want to unpack that from a different perspective. So it's pretty common nowadays to say that whatever ultimate reality is, so whatever ultimate reality is, Love is a part of it. So depending on where you're coming from, you may not be a Christian here today. And so depending on where you're coming from, you might interact with this a couple different ways. So I, I, I once heard a woman at Hansa say that, that she's really come to believe, I just overheard a conversation where she, she was saying, I've really come to believe that the universe loves us and wants good for us. There, there's another perspective where, where people believe in this thing called source. You may be somebody who believes in, in the idea of source, which is sort of an unseen 
reality, underneath the reality that we see and touch. And source is impersonal. It's not a person. It has no mind. It's sort of a positive energy. But if you tap into it, then whatever you think is positive will come about in your life. And so lots of people talk about source as the energy behind love. It's been fascinating to me over the past couple of years as I hear more and more of this kind of thing because it says to me that despite all the suffering in the world, despite all the pressure of life, despite all the evil in the world, most of us still sense that suffering and evil isn't the most fundamental part of reality. Most of us still sense that the suffering and the evil isn't the most permanent thing about reality. And what's interesting is that regardless of how we're coming at it, we, many of us feel as though the most permanent thing in reality, whatever that is, love is a part of it. Love is deeply a part of whatever ultimate reality is. We all somehow sense that. The problem is many of us get confused about what that ultimate reality might be, or we try to suppress it. I'll be up front. Love is relational by nature. Love always requires somebody to receive love, which means the universe doesn't love. Source, an impersonal energy, doesn't love. Persons love. Persons love. And so if love really is at the root of all things, if we're going to believe that, then we have to believe that the root of all things are persons. We're actually led to the Christian God. Christians believe that God is one. That doesn't mean that God is simple. God is one being that exists in three persons. We call them the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each one of those persons occupies different roles. They each do different things. But one thing that's shared between all of them is that they love each other. That fundamental to the reality of God, fundamental to what the persons of the Trinity do is they love one another. The Father gives love eternally to the Son by the Spirit who, re- who returns it to the Father. At the core of what God is, is relationship, self-giving love. The fundamental reality behind all things is the relationship of love within the Godhead. That's why... Something in us feels like love must be a part of the most fundamental part of reality. It's because of the triune God who made us to participate in his love. And so what happens now when one of the persons of God becomes human? He goes right ahead and he does what he's been doing since the dawn of time. He gives himself in love. Which doesn't mean that Jesus is just like sort of helplessly swept away by loving feelings, right? Like, like the redemption that Jesus comes to bring isn't Jesus by himself sort of like, <laughs> like wistfully sighing out of a window and daydreaming. Like, like love means action. It means that he did something. Jesus, his love is concrete. In other words, when Jesus loves, he serves. At one point, Jesus commented on his own ministry and he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus made himself less. There's this early Christian hymn. It's quoted in the book of Philippians, one of the letters of of a man named Paul. He quotes this Christian hymn. And at one point, there's a line in the song that, that says that Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Made himself nothing. And here in this passage, Jesus is inviting his disciples to reflect the nature of God by imitating him. 
when we imitate Christ, we're being restored to the image of God. Our purpose as human beings to reflect God's nature, the way we tap into that is through service. To give ourselves in self-giving love is the way we most reflect the self-giving, loving God. We're being reinitiated into the way of being human. And we bring all sorts of fears into that, right? When we think about service, I need to wrap up. I'll just speak to this briefly. But we bring fears into service because I think we don't want to miss out. Like FOMO, fear of missing out. Like that's all of us. We all just don't want to miss out on life, right? We're afraid that if we pour ourselves out for others, if we open our homes in hospitality, if we answer the 3 a.m. phone call, that we're going to somehow miss out on what life is meant to be. I know that I feel that myself. We fear being less than what we could be. And so I just think we need our spiritual eyesight adjusted. And the best way to do that is to look at Jesus. So like, we've been walking through the, the book of Matthew, and obviously Jesus pours himself out in service. When you look at Jesus, do you think, how pathetic, right? Like, man, he's really missing out. I don't think so. Like, there's no way in which, like, when I look at Jesus, he doesn't come across diminished. He's towering. I mean, the issue in Matthew is not that he's a doormat missing out on life. Like, the issue is that he's too much life for people to handle, right? He's just a hurricane. And it's all through service. The meaning that, that is coming through and that, that we're witnessing, regardless of whether you're a Christian here today or, or whether you are, when you look at the, at the life of Christ, nobody can, can mistake him for leading a meaningless life of missing out. He's too much to handle. When Jesus serves, when he loves, when he gives his life, it's at those moments where he actually seems most triumphant. Somehow, Jesus manages to look most like a king when he acts most like a servant. And he's inviting us to learn his way. The gospel restores us to the greatness of serving God as we rely on and reflect the service of Christ. So I'm almost certain I've gone over. I'm going to invite Donna to... Um, come up at this point and, and share a testimony. I'd just like to close some prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your service. We thank you for the way that you modeled to us what it looks like to rely on the Spirit of God and to reflect his nature, and that you, have, you are inviting us by your grace to participate in that. I thank you, Lord, that our works can contribute nothing to the salvation that you were bringing about that you are the pioneer and the finisher of our faith. You have drawn us to you in love, that you have made us right with God by grace, and that even this process, as we become more and more sanctified, more and more um, taught the way of Jesus, that even that process is not up to us, but that it comes by the power of your spirit working within us. Grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen. In the early days of the church, there was a man named Saul. 
who was dedicated to making life miserable for the early believers. God confronted him powerfully on his way um, to carry out more of this tremendous persecution on believers. And what he said to this man was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is how closely our God identifies with our suffering. And as we serve one another, we serve and love him. Bringing it to recent years of the church and this particular church, I have been so loved and served in so many ways by people in this church community. Um, It has impacted me over and over and over through the last few decades here. And I am so profoundly grateful. Um, I have learned so much about ministry through being ministered to in this place. And it's been a, a joy to love and be loved here. Um, a lot of this happens within the context of small groups and various small groups that uh, we've been part of through the years. And so I would so encourage you, if you have not found uh, a community group yet, um, a place where you can find a home with other believers and know and be known, I just encourage you strongly to do that. Um, it's where we reflect the glory and love of our God to one another, as you have done over the years so beautifully to me. Um, And I hope over the years that there will be more and more people come into our church family uh, and experience this as well. So um, thank you, and I just encourage you as you love one another, um, uh, to go forth. You're, you're making a difference. I know you are. Thank you. I think we'll stay down. Uh, I am Liz Woody, and this is my husband, Steve Woody. We get the honor of sharing with you the Melinda story today. Uh, Some of you may not be aware of that story, so hopefully you can learn more about that today. We've heard about Jesus serving, washing the feet of the disciples. We've also heard about the call to serve that he extended to his disciples and that has been extended to us And I want us to open up our minds to the fact that at the core of that is Jesus doing this. My people, look at me. Look at my Father. Look at who we are, the richness of all that we are. And look at what we do. And come to know us so deeply and join us in what we do. Be wide open, whatever that means. Because if you lose your life, you will gain it. 
So whatever that means, follow me. So we moved up here in 2014 for me to go to seminary at TED's. The hope was I would do the Master of Divinity, possibly the Ph.D. Um, Right now that's still in the works. And so uh, 2016 ended, and I had five semesters down, two semesters left to go of the Master of Divinity. We had hoped that we would be able to do the, the whole school journey without loans because Steve married into school loans when he married me. And so on this particular one, we are like, Lord, we're asking you to pay for each semester. Um, and he did. Five semesters down, he had paid for each semester. And um, the journey had been hard academically, financially, relationally, stress-wise. It had been difficult, but the Lord was faithful. It was a good journey. Five down two to go. Yeah, so in um, so early 2017, I was working here uh, as the uh, worship director and then also had an IT job, so part-time with both of those. And because of being uh, 1099, nobody was taking out taxes. And uh, so in 2017, we ended up owing like $12,000 in taxes. And um, we, you know, we were just, it was surprising. <laughs> and uh, so we were... We had seen the Lord's faithfulness up to that point financially, and then the Lord paid for all of that, um, and we were so grateful to see his faithfulness in that, um, and we're going somewhere with all the backstory, too, so it's... Um. Yeah, these are, this is background to the Melinda story. So, um, if you could throw up the first slide, and we'll just prompt uh, when we need a slide. Uh, so, in spring 2017, we had this big financial hit that came our way. Even though the Lord provided, it was a big thing. Um, and then, toward the end of May, so almost the time of final exams for that um, next to last semester, I got sick. And, um, and I remember this because I was in a group with Mike Stanzak and another guy, and we had a class presentation, and I was sick working on this class presentation, and I had what we thought was strep throat, which may not seem like a crisis to you. For me, it was because I had to try to find a way to treat it naturally, and I was not getting better. So I, I want to say it was like eight to ten days into it, and I'm like, I'm not getting better, and I needed direction. I called Jess Patrick up. Jess, what would you do if you had strep and you were trying to treat it naturally. And she said, you know, I don't know, but let me introduce you to my friend, Melinda. She has cancer and she's trying to treat it naturally. And I was like, okay, contacted Melinda. Melinda was warm, friendly, come on over. I have something you can try. And I kid you not, whether it was that or just the timing of the Lord, but by the next day, I could tell the sickness had been kicked. And uh, so some of you know that in 2017, um, I confessed to uh, some struggles related to to pornography and stepped down as worship director here. Um, And so you can imagine that uh, all the struggles going on in our marriage, we've had these financial things, and now the sickness, and then, um, you know, obviously with me stepping down and the issues there, uh, it's kind of a stressful time. Uh, and so, so through this, uh, oh yeah, go ahead and switch to the next slide. Um, so this is Melinda and she would love this picture if uh, she were here. And, um, so over the next few months, we were able to meet Melinda, uh, and go over a few times, have lunch with her, help her move things around the house. 
um, the Hernandezes, Everett, uh, they came over at different times and helped move plants and move furniture and all that kind of things. Um, and uh, so she said that she also, she wanted to downsize. She'd been in the same house for 15 years or so and felt like she was accumulating. And she's like, you know, I really want to get rid of most of this stuff. And uh, Liz is amazing at downsizing and organizing. So um, she said, yeah, if you could come help me with that, uh, that would be great. And so um, even at different times when we visited, we thought, man, what, it would be so much easier if we just lived with Melinda like to be able to, to do some of these things and help her out around the house, but it just didn't seem like a practical thing. It really seemed impossible that that could, could work. Um, I mean, obviously, it's just who, who moves in with somebody else like that just to help around the house and stuff. So, And literally, that's how the conversation would go. I wish we could move here and help her. It's just not practical. Uh, we never mentioned that to Melinda, and the months unfolded, and I entered into the last semester of my Master of Divinity journey. I had started an internship that summer, and I knew that I would finish the requirement for it at the end of the semester, but some of that, um, I would kind of continue some of the duties later into the, um, 2018. Um, and so I'm in my final semester, and in this internship, there was an Israel study tour that um, I was praying about going on as an intern. So students could go on it, but I wanted to go as an intern, and my professor was inviting me. And so we were praying, and we had set aside this day to... to seek the Lord's face and say, God, life in life in general, what are you doing? Do we put money toward this tour? Do we not? Whatever. And so we prayed and the Lord said, no. We're like, okay. So the next day my friend said, Liz, well, no to both of you, but would you consider going by yourself? Well, I don't know. Let me pray about it. So we prayed. We felt like, no, no. The answer was no. So the next week, Melinda posed a question. And it's so interesting because I really don't think we would have been ready for her question had the Lord not had us on our knees with the question about the study tour. I think the Lord used it to prepare our hearts for her question. Yeah, and so uh, it was about Thanksgiving. Uh, She said, hey, I've got a a question that I want to run by you guys. And I I think we both kind of knew what that question was going to be. She asked, would you ever consider moving in here. Um, you know, you could live here, you know, rent-free, uh, but I just need some help. You know, I'm not as strong as I used to be. I'm having a little more pain here and there. Um, and we really thought at that point that her health was doing pretty well. She did too. Um, but it just uh, kind of came out of the, out of the blue, but it, we can look back now and see how God was kind of getting all those things in place that uh, it, at that point it kind of made sense that she would ask that question. And she was asking us to move in just to be housemates, to help around. And if there was no uh, move in and be caregivers <laughs> um, that uh, we weren't thinking in those lines at all. So, And we would live there for free. So the reason we wanted to include the financial piece is that it would be a blessing to us. We'd live there for free and help her. So I finished my semester People had to help us move. I just want to be so clear that for those of you who have had to receive help from people, I know what it's like to want things in order before people show up to help you. The Lord did not allow that for us. I was finishing up school, and people had to show up and and help us shift. Thank you if you were a part of that. It was tremendous. And then we dropped our stuff off, and in a week, uh, went and visited family for Christmas and came back to a new home. 
Um, lots of adjustments, getting our bathroom set up so we could even use it. Steve had to shovel snow. It was a longer work commute. I'm now having to commute to internship duties on campus. It was a huge, huge adjustment. Uh, but there was beauty in it. There was the setting on the lake, uh, which we'll show you a picture in a minute, the community of being with Melinda, both for her sake and our sake, and, um, and then just God's perfect timing. So there we are in the house. It's January. 7th that we've moved in. We're adjusting throughout January. She is facing complications because her nerve pain from the tumors starts really giving her issues. And so she also has to go on medication, which creates bowel issues and also mental confusion. And so by the end of January and into February, we found ourselves very quickly caregivers. Uh, So again, as Steve said, that was not the original arrangement. None of us knew how it was going to go. And then very quickly, there we were, having never done work like this before, and we were her caregivers. There were battles in that um, because she is super, super, was super independent, and that was a loss of independence, and um, if anyone has been there, you can testify to how difficult that is. For us, there were battles because we needed um, structures to figure out how do we do this? How do we uh, manage medicine? How do we relate well? How do we do all these things? Um, Especially when you have, if y'all can imagine, how do we make Melinda comfortable with her nerve pain, which is so, there's no set pattern for how that worked, and then how do we make sure she she stays mentally clear. And so it was this constant tightrope of walking. And I remember one day in particular, please don't judge me for this, but, uh, and this was not how Melinda felt every day, but one day in particular, um, we had talked about Melinda, do you want to go rest? And she was going to go head upstairs to rest. And And we knew at that time, if she rested, the nerve pain would drop. And so she was headed up. But in that process of getting up from the chair and going upstairs, she decided, I want to be active. And to be active, Melinda needed medication. But that wasn't, it wasn't, it was such a fast um, step in plan that she didn't know how to communicate that to me. So then she's saying, I need medicine. And I'm thinking, well, if I give you medicine, we might have this mental clarity drop. And and so trying to figure out so there was this conflict out of nowhere and she she got so upset and she said I feel like you just want me to be in pain and I was livid because I thought here I am in your house trying the best I can to help you and you say that I want you in pain and so I emailed her son And I said, we have got to figure things out. He was on the way to visit us and help us figure things out. And I I share that story not to put Melinda or me in negative light, but to be real with you that there were really hard moments. And I understood her perspective, and I understood mine. So her son shows up on the scene, and we're like, Stephen, his name is Stephen as well. Stephen, we need help. We need structure. And so he he understood. He shared with his mom, Mom, we've got to get structure in place. And so that understanding was in place. Um, And from that point on, there wasn't this relational conflict with Melinda, but every new voice that entered the scene, we had to go for that understanding. So it was constant from then till May of this trying to gain the structure and the understanding so that this journey could go well. 
And let me just add that that was also while life was still happening for us. We're still working through what marriage looks like for us. Um, I'm still doing internship duties. He's um, still working and doing a class at CLC. And so our plates were full. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, sharing those things because it's, it is real life. Um, we don't get to just, you know, pause things and, and let things go real smoothly and you know, this ideal setting, when we serve each other, it's, it can be messy. It can be beautiful and glorious. Um, it can be messy. It can be heartbreaking. It can be exciting. Um, all of those things. Um, and the Lord is, is faithful in those things. Um, he's faithful to carry you through. He's faithful to, um, to provide support and people around you, uh, which is one thing we want to get to, um, is how we've seen, uh, Actually, before that, let me lighten it a little bit. There was a lot of humor with Melinda. I don't know if you knew Melinda. Melinda was funny. Um, and uh, lots of funny moments, just everyday random things. Melinda had that kind of personality that um, could just be goofy and silly. Um, and so um, even in the heartache, those uh, times of, of humor, one time she was uh, getting up to go upstairs for the evening. We had gotten home from uh, being out. And when we pulled in the driveway, we could hear her crying. And, um, you know, she was just in a lot of pain, and um, it turns out that she had had a, a nosebleed and all these things that I didn't even know, and she, so she's going upstairs, and uh, she realizes she has this stuffed bear named Patches. So if, you, if you'll pull, two slides ahead, if you'll pull up, this is our <laughs> poor rendition of Patches. Um, she's going upstairs, and she said, Patches is bleeding. And we're like, do What? And she's like, hello, is anybody in there? I said, Patches is bleeding. And it was just this, looking back, this very funny Melinda moment um, where we, we brought her back downstairs. We realized, oh, she's had a nosebleed. And, and um, you know, we had a lot of cleanup to do and stuff. And it was a long night and we were tired. But looking back, oh, it was such a, a precious moment with Melinda. It, it's, it captures her personality and all those things. Um, and even in her, um, her pain going up and down the stairs, um, she would sing songs. Um, she, she was very strong. She, she wouldn't tell you that she was strong. But um, she handled her pain gracefully um, and relied on the Lord to carry her through those moments. Um, and so with... You guys stepping in, uh, we just want to kind of point out the way you guys, as a body of Christ, served Melinda, served us, uh, served one another. Um, so in her, her community group, you've got JC, uh, J, JC, JP, hi JP, uh, JP and Jess, Kyle and Krista, Matt and Katie, Alan and Joy, Mike and Ashley, and there were others who um, weren't able to serve all the time, uh, but who definitely loved Melinda. Um, they helped it with normal stuff. They brought meals. They would come spend time with her. They would bring groceries over. Sometimes uh, they would give advice on medicine because of their pharmaceutical background or sometimes pick up medicine. And even when it meant like having to go through extra steps and jump through hurdles to be listed as a caregiver to be able to pick up medicine, um, there, were, there was service from her community group. Um, and they came over to help clean bathrooms uh, when our families were going to come visit. They helped work through things in the basement that Melinda still wanted to to um, to clean out. Um, 
And then there were others in the church as well who all jumped in in this big house. So the Gummingers um, were there for the, the basement clean out. They let us borrow air mattresses, and they brought games over when our families were in town. Um, some of you uh, brought meals and, and drove Belinda to appointments. Some of you said, I can help, and you were on standby just for anything that may pop up. Um, yeah, Linda Goldsberry, Andrea Clark, um, people like those two people came and sat with her, fed her, rubbed her down, uh, things that you just don't expect to have to do on a normal day. Uh, Mary Lynn watering plants and helping her sort through purses. Um, one lady came and did an all-nighter when Melinda had reached an, a non-responsive state so that we could get rest um, Donna planned activities for the grandkids. John Stevenson came over one time when Melinda was in mental confusion and needed help. And um, Jess came over when Melinda had fallen. She was okay, but to be with her till we could get there. And uh, Christine organized papers after papers after papers. I can't tell you the hours that she put into that. She also planned Melinda's service. And I want to tell you very quickly, we are so out of time, but I want to tell you about her son, Noah. They were all at home, Christine, Chris, and Noah. And Noah was asking Christine about her service at Melinda's house. And I don't even know how old Noah is, but this was a year ago. And, um, yeah, maybe he's nine. I might be missing that completely. And he um, was, was talking with his mom about all this stuff. And he said, you know what? We need to go over there right now and pray for her. Little did they know that that was the night before Melinda would pass away. We were kind of waiting on that time to come. And the rest of us, the, her small group, the Gummingers, us, were downstairs in the basement cleaning it out. And it was the first time. Um, lengthy time that we were leaving Melinda alone. And the Lord saw fit to move through the heart of a child to bring someone over to be with her during that time. I, I want to um, close with just a few comments. This story is not about us as much as it's about the body of Christ. It's about Melinda who received service from the body of Christ. It's about people who spoke into Melinda's life. Melinda, um, when she asked us to move in, there was going to be, it had to be more sudden than she was ready for. And so she almost backed out. And JP asked her, he said, Melinda, what are you waiting for? And it moved her to go ahead and have us move in. It is so good. He posed that question because none of us knew her, her health would take a nosedive. Um, So the Lord was working through person after person after person, bringing us into service. One of the things I was worried about was my own rest. We were vulnerable when we moved in. We were vulnerable while we were there, and we were vulnerable when we left. We were in need. And yet, God said, Liz, let me handle you. Let me care for you. And there were times that he did. There was a day that Steve was able to work remotely, and Melinda just happened to be in the hospital, so he had this day alone at the house that wasn't normal. My graduation came, and Christine was there, and Christine gave me a special lunch, and Jess showed up with a cake. Um, Betsy planned me a party. He took care of my care. Sometimes we want to claim self-care and boundaries as an excuse to answer God's call. 
I'm not saying be unwise, but I am saying open yourself wide to what God is doing because he knows how to care for you and everyone else in the mix. We not only were called to serve, but we were called to receive service. You guys served us. It was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It was supernatural. There were things accomplished that went far beyond what any of us could do. When Melinda went home to be with the Lord, it was an amazing experience. I wish we had time to tell you about it. It was supernatural. What was done was supernatural. In closing, please let me remind you that God is inviting us into who he is and what he's doing. Ask yourself, God, show me who you are and, and what are you leading me to do? Help me to be wide open to that and to adjust to that. It looks different for all of us but he knows how to work out the details and meet all of our needs.